The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your great grace to us in Christ. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and rose from the dead according to the scriptures to bring us to God, to bring us to you eternally and forever. And this is glorious and this is mysterious and this is more real to us than anything that we see that we by faith, by the promises of the gospel, by the person and the work of Christ have been united with Christ. When he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. And we await the full consummation of our salvation on the day when he returns. Oh, help us to live in accord with this reality. Help us to see it. Help us to understand it and live in unshakable hope no matter whatever is going around us. Because we belong to Christ and he belongs to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. About 30 years after the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church in the city of Colossae. And he wrote to strengthen the believers in their faith. He he wanted to direct them to seek their hope in Christ, their help from Christ, and their eternal joy in Christ. And one of the themes that we've seen in this letter to the to the Colossians is just the beating of the drum that of the fullness of Christ, of the sufficiency of Christ, the, the enoughness of Jesus for all that you need. So Paul's aim in this whole letter is that believers would grow in their faith, that we would mature, that we would, we would not waste our lives in, in vain philosophies and worldly stuff, but we would be fixed on the realities of the gospel and, and on Christ. And we would not be caught up in the folly of our sins, but we would be fixed on, on Jesus for our satisfaction and hope and joy. And so, well, Paul even prayed that we'd be filled with all wisdom. He prayed for power that, that this would happen. And so I, I want to begin with a question to you. Do you want to grow spiritually like that? Do you want what Paul is wanting for us to be called in to more and more of the fullness of all God promises to be for us in Christ? Or are you just kind of content, like, "Ah, I've got enough Jesus, no thank you? Because if that's where you are, I would say, you don't know him. You haven't tasted him. You haven't tasted of his goodness and of his grace and his 
steadfast love and his mercy and forgiveness and his reconciling power and his healing power and the hope that we have in him. You just haven't tasted it. So if you say, I don't want any more of this, Jesus, my hope and prayer is that God will move in by his spirit to create a taste for him and a longing for more. I trust that most of you are there and this text is for us, calling us in to the fullness that's ours in Christ. My outline is super simple. It's, it's nothing profound. I mean, I could say it this way. It's verse 1, and then it's verse 2, and then it's verse 3 and 4. <laughs> 3 and 4 together. So, we're just going to walk through the text. We're just gonna, so keep your Bibles open. We're just going to walk through the text. So right immediately in verse 1, we see that this instruction is for believers. If then you have been raised with Christ. Stop right there. What's he talking about? I'm still here. (laughs) You're still here. If you've been raised with Christ. Well, yeah, we are here. But spiritually, we're not. By the grace of God and the reality of the gospel, we have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So to believers, Paul just assumes, well, since you've been raised with Christ, he just talks to us that way. Over and over again in the New Testament, we see that all of the riches of God's grace and his goodness for us is ours in our union with Christ Jesus. We are united to Christ by faith. This is a spiritual and profound union so that who he is and what he does, he does with and for us. It's all over the Bible. In fact, I mean, just even in our text, you know, in the beginning it says, you have been raised with Christ. And then in verse 3 it says, well, you've died with Christ. It's spiritual talk. It's gospel reality. And like I say, it's more real than everything that we see. It's so basic to Christianity, this union with Christ, that when someone becomes a believer and they step forward to be baptized, the screaming symbolism is union with Christ, right? So the new believer comes down. The, the baptistry's right here. It's just covered up or else I'd be all wet. Uh, the, 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 the new believer comes into the water and, uh, and we lower them. I lower them down into the water symbolizing their union with Christ in his death and their eyes are closed and they're not breathing. Dying to sin. Dying to the power of sin dying to the penalty of sin because of Christ's death. And we raise them up out of the water and their eyes open and they they breathe, thankfully. They breathe, symbolizing that they have been raised with Christ to new life. I mean, I even had the image that like we go down in this world and we come up in another world, in the heavens, with a new life. Union with Christ. 
So, so this text is for believers because all believers are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. So now, there's two instructions that Paul gives us. They're parallel instructions. Let's look at the first one. It's in the rest of verse 1. Seek the things that are above. I might prefer to translate that. Set your hearts on things above. Set your hearts on things above. In other words, since you've been raised with Christ and you're already there in the heavenlies with him, set your hearts on Christ and things above. Seek Christ and the things above. It's an orientation to how you live. Don't orient your life mainly like looking over here and looking in here. Orient your life looking up there at Jesus. There is a thickness to this word translated seek. And and I love it. The, The NIV tries to get at it with set your hearts on things above. Um, things above. I mean, just the word seek somehow doesn't have that word, that hearty, hearty word in it. Hearty sense. But here, listen to how Paul uses the, the same word in 2 Corinthians 12. He's, he's speaking about wanting to, to go to the, the Corinthians, to their church, to their town, to see them. And he says, I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours. I don't want your stuff, but you. Do you hear? I seek you. I seek you. My yearning is for you. My love is for you. My desire is for you. That's why I prefer set your heart. Set your hearts on things above as gathering, capturing the thickness of that word merely, uh, more strongly than merely the word seek. Set your hearts on things above. And, and it's a present tense command. You know what that means? Keep on setting your heart on Christ and the things above. Keep on, keep on setting your hearts on him and, and on the things above. This is a way of life. This is a p- perspective of life. And it tracks with so much of the New Testament, so much of the Bible, Bible's teaching. Keep on seeking Christ like, like the, the treasure hunter that leaves behind all that he has to get the, the treasure in the field. Jesus mentions in the parable. Keep on seeking Christ like a, a thirsty deer pants for streams of water. Keep on seeking Christ like your, as your greatest heart desire. Like, like Paul says, look, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing him. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Keep on seeking Christ's lordship and his kingdom, as Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things that you need will be added to you. (sighs) Set your hearts on things above. I got to thinking about this, maybe because as a kid I was so frustrated with, with, you know, the kind of, the treasure hunts and things. You know, they would always be like a treasure hunt, and and there'd be one treasure, and like all these kids are looking for it, and only one person finds it, and he's like, okay, great. It's not like that. The, the riches of Christ, 
the unsearchable riches of Christ, the overflowing fullness of Christ is such that we all seek him. We all uh, set our hearts on him and we all can find him. The enoughness of Jesus is there for all of us to enjoy and come into. Everybody wins. If you seek me, or excuse me, you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. God says, Jeremiah 29, 13. So, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, reigning over all things. That's the first instruction. Here's the second one in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Again, the verb here, this verb set, is present imperative, meaning keep on setting your minds on things that are above. Keep on. Keep on setting your minds on Christ and the things that are above. Just notice here, you know, when you see the two instructions in parallel, set your hearts on things above or Christ. Set your minds in the same place. The Bible's consistent with this kind of thing. Our minds and our hearts are inextricably connected. And, and it's, a, it's a false dichotomy that says, you know, if, you're, if your heart is strong, then your head won't be, or that if your head is strong, then your heart won't be. I mean, it, there's a kind of a stream of anti-intellectualism in evangelicalism that says, look, if you study too much, you won't be able to worship. That's crazy. Set your hearts on things above. above. Set your minds on things above. I tell you, oh, how I grew in my experience of worship somewhere in my mid-20s. I don't don't think, in hindsight, I don't think I knew what worship was or maybe I stumbled into it from time to time, but what happened was John 4 happened. John 4 came alive in me. For the time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For these are the kind of worshipers. For such as these, the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And you know, here's what happened in my 20s. The connection between thinking about God and the gospel and his, God's character and Christ and his mercy and his blessings and our hope, the promises. Thinking about the, that, that with my mind ignited my heart to worship him and love him and trust him and delight in him for his character and his person and his grace and his mercy and his promises. It was like, 
Do you know why our worship services, I'm so thankful for the team, Chuck and Renee and the team that leads us in worship week after week after week. I am so thankful. Do you know why they craft these worship services with biblical truth, grounding them so solidly? In fact, this sermon was already preached. We already sang it. Grounding the what we sing so rooted, so rudely, so deeply into the, into the word and into the truth. And then we sing songs in order that our hearts would accord with the truth. I'm so thankful for the team. And, and it sets the table for the spirit and truth worship that Jesus said God is looking for. And Paul says in this passage, live this way. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above where Christ is. And enjoy God and all that he promises to be for us in Christ Jesus. Sidebar. Funny, even in, 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 seminary, in seminary, in college and seminary, I would choose professors who would worship. You know, I'm, I'm a Bible major. I went to seminary. I would go to class. I'm looking for the professors who sing in class. End of side part. If your mind is void of the word, of the truth of God, of the gospel, you won't worship. You might kind of conjure up some emotion. You might clap your hands and dance a little trying to find something. It just won't happen. Not in the way that God is looking for, that Jesus is teaching, that Paul is calling for. Heart and mind, heart and mind. The negative is stated right at the end of, of uh, verse 2. Excuse me, yeah, verse 2. Not on things that are on earth. I can say two things quickly. First, it means to heed the warning of the previous chapter to keep your mind away from being swept away by worldly arguments and empty philosophies and ideologies of the current age, the stuff that, that everybody in the world is excited about. Keep your mind away from that stuff. And the second thing I'd say about uh, not on things that are on earth is set not your heart nor your mind on the sins of the old life. And uh, we'll look at that passage next week. Rather, keep on setting. Remember, present, present imperative. Keep on setting your mind on the things above that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, Colossians 1.9. 1, 1, keep on setting your mind on the things that are above so that you might live in a manner worthy of the Lord, Colossians 1.10. Keep on setting your minds on the things above so that you might be ever increasing in the knowledge of God, ever experiencing God for who he is and ever enjoying the riches and fullness of all that he is and promises to be for us in the gospel. This is a call into fullness and into joy and into satisfaction and into grace. 
Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So pray, pray, pray. You, you can't do this by yourself. Pray that God would give you grace to set your mind on Christ and the things above. And pray that, that God would give you grace to set your, your, your mind on things above and on Christ and that the heart and mind would unite together with a, with a fixation on Jesus and his, his reign and his mercies to us. Now, verses three and four are interesting now because what verses three and four say is that your life in Christ, this, this union, you, know, you, you're, you died with him, you're raised with him, you're, you're above, that, that union, it's hidden. But it won't always be hidden. Verse three. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So it's hidden. The spiritual reality is, is real. It's there. It's concrete. But you can't see it. Other people can't see it. You can't see that I'm united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. I can't see that you are. It's hidden for now to the natural eye. In fact, you know, think about it. <laughs> I could look at you. I could look at myself. You look pretty earthly. You look like everybody else. You're tempted and you sin and you struggle with the troubles and sufferings and anxieties and despairs of life and the hardships. You get sick and your body will fail. Your, your hair will come out. Your knees will start aching. And you will die unless the Lord returns before you do. Our new life is hidden for now. Hidden. Our union has not yet been manifest. Let me illustrate with the union of a man and a woman in marriage. The first part is true. The second part, I'm going to make up. <laughs> I'll tell you when I switch. I once performed a private wedding for a couple about six months before their public wedding. And it was, it was all about immigration, uh, and the intent was to be legally married ahead of time in order to file the immigration papers in order that after the public wedding, they could leave the country together. And uh, so we, we, I officiated this private wedding ceremony. They spoke their vows, made their promises, exchanged their rings, and I, I declared... Uh, in, in, in accord with the, 
with the word of God and the laws of the state of Minnesota. I now pronounce you man and wife. So in God's eyes, they're married. In the, in the law of the land, they're married. And yet, right after the private ceremony, the groom got on a plane and went back to his home country. Now, they were really married, but their union was invisible. It was hidden. You couldn't see it. I mean, it was only known to a few people, to themselves and a few other people who they let into the secret. She still walked around life as single. She looked single. Didn't look like she was married at all. She appeared as she always had. They didn't live together, though they were married. They lived on separate continents. Now let me embellish the story a little with the gospel. Let's say the groom is king of all the land. And he's left, but he will soon return for his bride. And the bride is of no such royalty. She brings to the marriage all that she has, which is Nothing, for she's poor. She brings all that she is to the marriage. She's a little like Cinderella, poor. She looks ordinary. Her clothes are tattered and worn. She has made some bad choices. She has even been mistreated. She, at times, goes to bed hungry. She moves from living place to living place because she has no home. By all appearances, she's no better off than anyone else. In fact, sometimes she looks worse. But what is hidden from view is the union. She's the queen. She's the queen. By their union, everything he is and everything he has belongs to her. His status, his wealth, his palace, his throne, his life together. And although it's not outwardly visible, she really belongs to the royal family. And this royal family is full of grace and love. That's where she belongs. The townspeople may mock her and even malign her and mistreat her. She may even at times come to doubt that this, this is all too good to be true. But then she remembers the union and the promises. He's coming. He's coming back. The day is coming when her royally robed husband, dressed in white, will return for her. Riding on a white horse, no less, and with all the fanfare and pomp and display that a royal wedding deserves, the, the ceremony and the reception and the celebration and the new garments and the dance and the banquet will reveal in, un, in no uncertain terms who she is. It will no longer be hidden. 
And all the kingdom will see her as the queen seated on the throne next to her husband, the king, in all his royal glory. There it is. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we live now, setting our hearts and minds on things above, acknowledging the hidden, the invisible union that we have with Christ, united in his death, united in his resurrection to life. And we wait until the revealing. Until that day, we are in this process of We are sanctified, we are saints set apart for God, united with Christ, and at the same time, we are being sanctified. God's working in us, and when the day comes, we will be fully sanctified and glorified when Christ returns. But until that day, who we are and what we are is hidden from view. But the day is coming when Christ will return in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And his coming will split the sky from east to west, and the trumpet will sound, the trumpet call of God, and the, the dead in Christ, believers will rise and, and be joined together with we who are still alive, and we'll meet the Lord in the, in the air, and, and the, the wedding banquet and the feast will begin, and, and what is Mortal will put on immortality, and what is imperishable, our bodies, will be clothed with, with the imperishable. And every eye, every eye on earth will see Jesus coming in his glory on his white horse, even those who crucified him and rejected him. And every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what we sung? He shall return in robes of white. The Son of God will pierce the night, and I shall rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face, and we shall forever be with the Lord for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Then what is hidden now will be visible for all to see as we bask in the glory of our King, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead forever and ever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, such is our hope. Such is our hope. I pray that you would call us in. Call us in to your fullness. Call us in to the reality of our union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Call us in to to feast and drink and partake of the fullness of all that you are and all that you promised to be for us in Christ. Satisfy our, our desire for 
love and for hope and for joy in and through Christ and your promises for us in him. Thank you so much for your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.